When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Survey Journal, June 21st, 1917. The woods had been logged, then logged again. Tossed strands of maple and basswood, chopped and floated downriver to La Crosse 40 years ago, had given way to pale thickets of aspen. These in turn had been mown for pulp. 20 years later, they'd regrown. Rand imagined how the forest's color had changed. Beneath their June canopy, open male woods were as green as ink and nearly blue in the shadows. But here the crowded aspens cast a sage-gray dusk. The pulpers had done a rushed job. As Rand's survey team shoved through the brush, he had to step high to avoid tripping over the barrows of fallen poles the lumbermen had missed. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Ben Pladek, author of Dry Land. We first meet his protagonist, Rand, in the north woods of Wisconsin, where he and a team of engineers are surveying the landscape. Rand discovers that he has a gift for growing any plant or tree, and the story turns from lush descriptions of nature to a climate fiction novel that circles around woodlands and marshes, queerness, relationships, and nature. After he and his team are drafted and sent to fight in the Great War, Rand's secret is discovered by a commanding officer, and his skills are used by the American army to grow trees for wood. But Rand is living with two dangerous secrets, either of which could destroy him. One, everything he grows will die within days. And two, he is gay during a time when the army and society does not accept homosexuality. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. How did you come to write this beautiful novel? So Dryland began as a short story that was first published in a now closed magazine of speculative fiction called Lackingtons. Uh, but the novel's deeper roots lie in my move to Wisconsin in 2014. To get to know our new home, my husband Jonathan and I went hiking all over the state and I fell in love with its landscapes, especially the hardwood forests of the Driftless region and the wetlands in the area that was once Glacial Lake, Wisconsin. Um, Um, All of the Wisconsin landscapes in the book are based on real locations. I started reading about Wisconsin's conservation history and got really interested in both its general legacy of forestry and more specifically the dredging and refilling of Horican Marsh. And uh, the story kind of evolved from there. Wow. I have never read such gorgeous descriptions of the North Woods. Um, So I was going to ask when you fell in love with it. Now I know. But did you include the swamps in the area you fell in love with? 
Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite areas in the state is uh, what's called Horican Marsh. It is a giant freshwater marsh that is in the area that used to contain Glacial Lake, Wisconsin, and it's a major birdwatching area. There, it's a migratory flyway, and I love Horican very deeply. And Horican is the basis of Clearwater Marsh, which is the marsh in the novel. Mm-hmm. We learn about Rand, your protagonist's gift, when he's forced to lie so that the team doesn't cross in the di- direction of where his gift, which is a field of white trillium, is growing. Can you explain what happened without giving away too much? Yes, I can. So this is the spoiler-free-ish version. Um, so Rand gains the magical power to grow plants from nothing. And that's not really a spoiler because we learn that by about page five. Uh, So for example, if he's got a pine cone, he can grow a white pine. And since he's young and idealistic, he's only 22, he believes that his power will magically solve all of the ecological damage that's been wrought by a century of clear-cutting and marsh draining. So the book takes place in 1917. By this point, most of the Northwoods in Wisconsin were pretty thoroughly clear-cut. Many of the marshes had been drained. Um, And I I don't think it's a a spoiler to say that Rand learns that ecology is much, much more complicated than magic solutions. I'm actually very skeptical of the idea that any singular hero with an extraordinary gift can solve any large-scale systemic problem. You know, you, you can't solve climate change with magic, but I have so much sympathy for the kind of idealism that wishes you could, and that's Rand's idealism. He's a genuinely well-intentioned wannabe hero whose naivete lies not only in his trust of regulatory organizations like the Forest Service, but in the story that he's told himself about heroism. Mm-hmm. Why does he have the nickname Swamp Boy? Can you say something about the Clearwater Marsh? Absolutely. So one thing that is kind of funny is that he's called Swamp Boy, and it's a little bit of a joke because ecologically, swamps and marshes are different types of wetland. Um, but the people who gave Rand that name don't make those kinds of distinctions. So as a young man, Rand fell in love with a local marsh called Clearwater. Uh, the marsh gets drained for farmland, destroying it. And Rand knew that that was happening. And when he was a teenager, he tried to stop it with this petition of high schoolers all around Wisconsin. And he lost. Uh, the state Uh, the government told him, sorry, we're going to drain the marsh anyway. And so a lot of his conservationist impulses stem from this early failure, his desire to actually succeed in saving a beloved natural place. And as I'd mentioned earlier, Clearwater is based heavily on Horican Marsh, a massive freshwater marsh in central Wisconsin that really was drained for farming in the early 20th century. But farming it didn't work because the soil was too poor. And the marsh actually ended up drying out and the peat that was exposed to the sun caught fire, causing massive gusts of smoke to drift across the state before people came to their senses and refilled the marsh in the early 1930s. Wow, what a story. We stumbled upon a marsh in Wisconsin uh, earlier in the year, but I don't remember the name of it. I'm going to find out so I can check with you. So anyway, Ben writes letters to Jana, the one person in the world he could be honest with, his high school friend, who even thought he might be in love with at some point. Can you say something about her and about their relationship? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jana Larson is Rand's best friend. And as you say, they've been friends since they were young. Um, 
So like Rand, Yana is a massive idealist, though her interests lie more in art and politics than in nature. She's wiser than Rand in many ways, but over the course of the novel, she realizes that in other ways, she's just as naive as he is. It's actually uncomfortable for her to realize this, since she likes to think of herself as more worldly. And the two characters mirror one another. Uh, their close friendship stems from that mutual recognition. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the novel, maybe my favorite part of the novel, is the extended conversation they get to have with one another near the end of the book, um, where they kind of talk about their friendship and realize just how much they resemble each other. And that actually wasn't something that I initially intended to happen, but as I was writing their characters, it kind of went from subtext to text by the time the book was finished. Mm, wow. Um, ben is enamored of the writings of John Muir, known as the father of the national park system. He learned in his reading about the difference between conservation and pres preservation. Can you address those subjects? For sure. Um, so... I should preface this by saying that I am a literature scholar and not a historian of ecology. So what I'm about to say is very, very general, and any actual historians listening to this will be able to point to where I'm getting things wrong. So uh, apologies in advance. Uh, all of that being said, in the late 19th and early 20th century, when the U.S. Forest Service was founded, there were competing views on the nation's wild spaces. Uh, of course, the Forest Service didn't care at all about the indigenous people they were pushing off these quote-unquote wild lands uh, for whom these lands were and are home rather than some unpeopled wilderness. Um, and I could talk much more about that, but there is a, lo a long and interesting and very violent history of the idea of a pristine wilderness being used to justify stealing land from indigenous nations who had been there for a really long time and who the Forest Service and the, the Park Service too liked to ignore uh, because they just wanted to, to steal that land. Uh, so anyway, that's prefatory. Uh, in the early 20th century, there were these two competing schools of ecological thought. Conservationists uh, generally denoted a uh, they believed in um, resource management, so they saw forests as banks of timber to be cultivated, logged, and regrown. Uh, preservation as an idea was much more interested in keeping some wild places, and again, wild is in air quotes, pristine, i.e. free of human meddling, though it was sometimes fine with having wild places serve recreational purposes. Uh, John Muir is a famous early preservationist figurehead. And so Rand, the lead character of the novel, begins life, or he begins the novel as a preservationist, but then begins to have doubts about his own definitions of nature and wilderness, etc. cetera. Uh, ultimately, he ends up at a place that doesn't sit easily with either early 20th century conservation or preservation. Hmm. And, and you personally, what's your thought? I think it's very complicated. Um, there is no single universal answer to what, how any, uh, per, any like all landscapes should be preserved. It is something that has to be decided locally, communally, in conversation with the people who have lived longest on the land, the people who are currently on the land, and what the land itself needs. So, for example, a conservation plan or a preservation plan for the Amazon would look very different from a conservation or preservation plan um, for the center of Wisconsin, because those are different places with different histories. Uh, so all conservation ultimately has to be very local and rooted in a genuine understanding of the land as a community of which humans are a part rather than kind of separate of it, while also recognizing that we have much more power than literally any other animal on this planet to uh, either help keep the land healthy or destroy it. 
So true. We meet Gabriel when he's fed up with three weeks of mud in what he calls this boggy hellhole. He misses the sweet pine woods of his home in the Southwest. Can you introduce Gabriel, explain who he is, and tell us how did he end up in Wisconsin? So Gabriel is Rand's he begins as Rand's lover, um, a sort of mutual sexual relationship that is beneficial for both parties. And then over the course of the novel, their relationship uh, modifies into something with a little bit more emotion behind it. So Gabriel is the wealthy Mexican-American son of a fairly rich ranching family in New Mexico. And he has had some family troubles uh, that mean his parents wanted him to go into the Forest Service because that would help him train to manage the vast ranching lands that his family owns. Uh, he wasn't especially happy with his family, so he chose to enter the Forest Service as far away as possible from them, i.e. go to Wisconsin, not knowing that, you know, if your favorite thing is uh, mountain sun and dryness, Wisconsin is really not the place you want to go. So uh, he ends up in a landscape that he deeply dislikes. Um, but, you know, it's his character arc throughout the novel is learning to find a way to go after what he actually wants to do, which is has nothing to do with ranching, uh, but which has to do with music. He is a violinist and his dream is to play in a major orchestra. Oh, God, one of my favorite parts was when he listened to the bird song and he knew what he has perfect pitch and he knew what key they were tweeting yes. and i loved that part um rand is the team because it's a whole forestry team doing this um surveying and he's the only graduate of the forest school forestry school what does that mean for him and for the team and what should we assume about the others forestry backgrounds including gabriel Absolutely. Um, Gabriel's a little bit different because he is also university educated, but just he didn't do his degree in forestry. Um, so in the early 20th century, many of the men who worked in the Forest Service were not coming out of university educated backgrounds. Forestry was at the as a kind of educational program fairly new. There were a couple of universities that offered forestry programs. Yale was one of them. It's actually where Aldo Leopold, the famous Wisconsin conservationist, went. And I based Rand in part on Leopold's educational experiences. So Rand is the only person on this six-man survey team who has had a university education at all, and that makes him both better at certain things and wildly inexperienced at, honestly, most others. Um, so he's got a lot of book learning, but not a lot of actual experience. Um, and he is also, I think for some very good reasons, uh, a little bit suspicious to his teammates uh, because they are worried that he's going to be all hoity-toity about his education. Um, and he tries not to be, but it's difficult to avoid uh, if, you know, you have gone through life with a bit of a silver spoon in your mouth, as Rand has. Um, and so there is a distance between himself and his teammates is because of his education, which is very different from their upbringing. Mm -hmm. So now we're in, the, as you said, the 1917, and there, the Great War is being fought, and the whole team is shipped off to France. Um <laughs> Can you say something about that? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot I could say. It, yeah. Um, so they're all shipped off to France. And one thing that I wanted to do with this novel, uh, because 
many novels about World War One are novels about the Western Front and experiences of the soldiers in the trenches. And I've read a lot of those. I love those novels. But what I was interested in is the fact that World War One was a war that was won and lost on resources as much as fighting power. And and actually, the largest regiment uh, of the U.S. Army that actually went over to Europe were not fighters, but foresters. Um, so the 20th Engineers Forestry was by far the biggest regiment um, in the U.S. Army at the time. And they most of them never saw battle. Uh, they just cut down enormous swaths of wood in France and then used those for piling or building railroads or building trench fortifications. And I... I'm somebody who's kind of interested in industrial history, and so I wanted to write a World War One novel that focused not on the story that everybody knows, which is we are all very sad cannon fodder in the trenches, uh, but on the kind of background of the war, uh, the materials that supported it. Yeah, you did it. You 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 got through. Um, so Yana very cleverly manages to get over to France as a journalist, and so she could still be there helping being Rand's right-hand man, as it were. And Rand seems to feel like because of his gift, he feels like nature accommodates him because he can grow everything. But Yana, in her uh, wisdom, she advises him to avoid suspicion by acting more natural than he's acting. Can you say more about that? Can you give me the specific moment that you're talking about? Um, they, are, Yana, we find out, is also gay and in mm -hmm. a relationship with a woman. And she knows who Rand is, and she knows he's in love with Gabriel. And, um, well, how about this? Let's talk about what's going on. Before, we, before you answer the question about Yana, let's talk about what was happening in the U.S. Army for people who were gay. So this is a big and very interesting question. And the early 20th century is a fascinating time in queer history, because it's when heterosexual and homosexual were being sociologically defined as opposite identity categories. Uh, so there was more public pseudoscientific discussion of sexuality and gender than ever before. And this was simultaneously exciting. Queer people could read Freud, Havelock Ellis, Magnus Hirschfeld, and others to learn that they weren't alone. There were other people like them, um, which honestly, most of them are like many of them already knew. Um, this was also frightening however, because the sudden visibility of queerness in the scientific and sociological sphere, whether queerness was called homosexuality, inversion, or something else, made queers targets in new ways. Uh, U.S. Army regulations are an interesting place to see this happening. You could be court-martialed for sodomy in the army, but not technically homosexuality. But by default, the only people actually court-martialed for sodomy were homosexuals. Um, at the same time, I want to add that queer people have a long and rich history outside the panopticon of public and scientific scrutiny. Uh, queers have always been around, and we often find each other. So Dryland's entire main cast is queer, and that isn't actually a historical in any way, um, especially if you read anything about the networks of queer people that really did exist in places like Wisconsin around World War One, even beyond the cities. I think a lot of us tend to think of queer history as something that occurred mostly in urban areas, but uh, that's false. It it occurred everywhere. It, there just is more documentation in the cities. Um, and when writing Rand, Gabriel, Yana, and uh, the person who eventually becomes Yana's partner, Marie, I wanted to write about queer people who weren't bothered by their queerness, though the world around them was bothered by it. Tell me, though, I don't know much about gay history. What was happening in the United States Army? What was the, 
was that different from society as a whole? Did the army have separate rules for what happened? It really, it varied on a, a state by state basis. Um, like there were sodomy laws on the books in places, but whether or not they were enforced really depended on whether or not the legislators wanted to kind of go after queer people. And that was subject to the whims of history and location. Um, so for example, you begin to get a lot more repression of queer people after World War One, in part because queerness was seen as allied with socialism. Um, and not for any particular reason, I just I think it's because uh, queer people and uh, socialists and communists were all kind of glumped together in this category of outsiders. And um, legislators who were, for example, perpetuating the first Red Scare in 1919 um, were also worried that queer people would somehow infiltrate normal society and uh, corrupt everybody. It's a very, it's a knee-jerk disgust-based response uh, that then kind of bled into all of these other marginalizations. Um, that is fascinating. I had, I never, yeah. heard, wow, that makes sense because they really hated socialists. So then we meet the chief engineer, Gray, and Major Albert Manning, a doctor with the Army Corps of Engineers, who is going to be giving Gray updates about RAND. Why does he need to take a weekly blood sample? What's going on? Okay, so Manning, uh, the closest thing that this book has to a villain is this Forest Service uh, major named Albert Manning. He is a racist, homophobic eugenicist, as were many people in the Forest Service in the 20th century, including its founder, Gifford Pinchot. Um, so Manning sees Rand's gift as something that could be bred eugenically, and he sees Rand's homosexuality and relationship with a Mexican-American as these taints to be purged. And unfortunately, there are some very tight links between early conservation movements and eugenics in U.S. history. There is a fairly direct line between the desire for a quote-unquote pure, uncorrupted wilderness, which again, never existed in the U.S. because there were indigenous people already living here, um, and the desire for a quote-unquote pure, uncorrupted race. And it oh. is, it, you know, one of the sort of major black marks on the early forest service, even even beyond its complexity as a regulatory organization that was uh, devoted to taking land away from indigenous people, there was also just a very strong element of straight up eugenist racism there. Um, mm -hmm. And eugenicist racism often included uh, the desire to eliminate homosexuality. Wow, these are these are issues that I, I really knew nothing about. I got to say, your book is for anyone who loves nature, anyone who loves Wisconsin in particular, and um, people who are fascinated by the history of this country and the social history. Uh, would you agree? And it's and people who love and are fascinated by queer fiction as well. Uh, thank you. Yeah, those were definitely some of the major things that I wanted to hit with this book. Um, okay, you did yeah. it. <laughs> so so tell tell me what what are you working on next? So I am very superstitious, so I don't like to say too much about my upcoming projects because I am afraid of jinxing them. But what I will say is I'm working on a second historical novel. It's also speculative and also set in Wisconsin, but this one is set in the 1930s. Um, it's about the Great Depression, gender, class politics, and the value of literature in times of great stress. Oh, 
It sounds fascinating. Keep me posted. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ben Pledek. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is J.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to author Ben Pledek about his beautiful novel, Dry Land. Hope you all have something lovely to read today and every day. Happy reading.